William Peter Blatty presents Greg Proops. Hooray, hurrah, once again, the smartest man in the world, Kripkaus, takes it to the eat to her. From the Cerise confines of the ruby red rose place that is Bar Livich here in Western Hollywood, across from the pleasure chest, right across the street from the pleasure chest, where it is indeed, once again, ladies and gentlemen, Cocktober, and we worship that month. Uh, because Cocktober leads into no ender. And then um, the, the year just travels on and on. I don't know where time has gone. My God, it seems like only yesterday I was failing earlier in the year. And now here we are. Here we are underachieving this late in the year. Wow. I've really got to screw my shit down to a board and then fucking hone that board and then send it to a place where boards get put through things that make them better. Sawmills? Is that what boards go through? I'm so not board-oriented. You know what I mean? Like, people took shop in school and shit like that. I never took shop in my life. I took foods class because you could get high and there was cheerleaders. And, uh, I mean, not like they gave you cheerleaders, but they were there. And they wore their uniforms. And we would just ogle them, as they say, in high school. Uh, but but there, we would make blueberry cakes and whatnot. Uh, and that's all we did. And I would meet my friend Mike Novi for Cokes and Smokes behind the portable. And um, we would smoke our, I think in those days, Merits. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is the 70s, bro, Haim. And, uh, and then drink Cokes out of the can. There was no such thing as bottled water then. I mean, there was. If you lived in Europe and you had wooden shoes and shit. <laughs> If you were in a Katherine Hepburn movie, then there was bottled water. Otherwise, if you lived in the United States in the mid-70s, there was no such thing as bottled water. You drank soda pop, and there was no such thing as uh, uh, drink caddies in your car either. You put that fucker between your legs, and you balanced it the whole way, no matter where you were driving, no matter what was going on. And if it was a Fresca or a Tab or whatnot, or a Mr. Pib or a Simba, it would like be, ah! you'd be like, oh, God, I'm spilling my Simba and whatnot. And then we go to Taco Bell. Me and my friend Tom Matroni, we get really high and we go to Taco Bell. And you had to balance all the fucking cups everywhere. And bless you, Ryan. Uh, you'd take off. You'd put the cup on the dashboard. Or, hilariously, if you open the glove compartment or if you insist the glove box. Uh, I always felt like the glove box was a punishment place. I got a bridge on the river choir or whatever. You know, like... <laughs> Who told you you could bring gloves to this camp? You know, we always bring gloves. We're English officers or whatever. Put him in the glove box. Um, thank you. I was doing Sasui Hayakawa, by the way. I want you to know that I don't feel that all Asian people speak with a hilarious cartoon accent. I was actually doing an impression of, the, of Sasui Hayakawa from the movie Bridge on the River Kwai. And by the goddamn way, this is your homework. Go home and look up Sasui Hayakawa because he was a giant star here in Hollywood and he was a star in the silent movies. And he's one of the great Asian stars this country ever produced. And his greatest role, which he failed to procure the, uh, great, the Supporting Actor uh, Academy Award for, even though Alec Guinness won for Bridge on the River Kwai, as is Colonel Ito in Bridge on the River Kwai because he's staunch. And then he's uh, later uh, when Alec Guinness gets the better of him, he's crushed. And then at the end, they see, yeah, if you've ever, I don't know, I don't want to spoil the alert or whatever, but the bridge gets built. Um, <laughs> uh, Colonel Ito, I'd like to have a word with you about my men. You will do as you are told. I'm afraid it's out of the question for the officers to work with the men on the bridge. But the Japanese officers are working with the men. Uh, I am afraid you're on your own when you make decisions like that with what you want to do. I can only know that I... Um, oh, I'll do the whole fucking movie if you like. Uh, it's a good fucking movie. 
You know why it's a good fucking movie? Not just because it has adventure and giant fruit bats, because they shot it in Sri Lanka. So there's fucking fruit bats everywhere. The whole movie is like uh, a, a gun goes off or something goes off, and all these fruit bats swing out of a tree. And fruit bats are the biggest bats. They're this big. Sometimes they call them flying foxes uh, because they're so goddamn large, and they have giant snouts and shit like that. And if you go to Sydney or uh, uh, what's that park near the Sydney Harbor uh, uh, where the opera house is in Sydney, there's, they hang in the trees right there, and they're huge, and they fight with each other, and they squabble. And I've said this before on the show, they will try to urinate on you. And they're not carnivores, and their urine is acrid. They only eat fruit. So it's like being peed on by Martinelli's cider. You know what I mean? Like, you're, you're walking along, and all of a sudden, you're like, what is that horrible, ungodly... And then you see them because the fuckers hang upside down but when they pee they have to flip so they flip themselves over and they're like wow like that is hard. and they have little ears they have dog ears they have dog ears they have dog ears they're absolutely scarifying and they're in that movie but the other thing that makes the bridge on the river quite great is of course one they're in a prison camp uh, it's British prisoners of war in a, in a Japanese prison camp somewhere way up in rank Burma is it is that where the choir is and uh, right there, they're fighting, you know, and so they're, the Japanese are forcing them to build this bridge. But the problem is the Japanese can't build it. So you get every single point of view. First of all, Colonel Ito is like Otto Preminger during Starlight 13 or, uh, uh, well, I was going to say Eric von Stroheim in the rules of the game, but he's not. Eric von Stroheim isn't actually the cruel, more like, um, what is it, Ray Fiennes in... Uh, um uh, Schindler's List, you know, the, 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 the dominant Nazi, except Ray Fine plays it. The subtlety of Ray Fine's performance in that is that he's like every boss you ever had, right? Because he's incompetent and he's like middle management, you know what I mean? He's supposed to be running this death camp and he's like, Oscar, what should I do? For the whole movie, right? Oscar, you know how to wear clothes. What's that like? Oscar, you know girls. Introduce me to girls. You, you know what he's like? He's like the fucking sec... He's like a showrunner. You know what I mean? They've given him this big job, but he really doesn't know what to do, and he's kind of not confident enough and shit like that. Welcome to the show. And, uh... But in Bridge of the River Kwai, Colonel Ito is ostensibly wickedly cruel because he makes all the men stand in the sun and then they fall over one by one, which is a tremendous scene. And then when Alec Guinness refuses as the staunch British commander, and Alec Guinness is the starchiest British commander in the history of the world, and Alec Guinness does this in every movie. Uh, and you, if you watch, you'll see. If you, uh, even The Horse's Mouth, the comedies, uh, or, or uh, uh, Lavender Hill Mob or whatever like that, but especially in his really starchy roles like Tunes of Glory uh, or... Um, well, he's not that. Well, John Mills is the starchy one in that one. But he'll do this in every movie. And it's, it's this walk. Alec Guinness does this. <laughs> it's the most unnatural walk in the entire world. And he does it in all. In the Bridge on the River Choir, when they find the, and the rope at the end of the dynamite and stuff, he goes. <laughs> and then when he gets. Spoiler alert. When he gets shot, he goes. <laughs> and then falls. Who walks like that? It's so good. So he's supposed to be the unyielding British officer who plays by the book. And then, like, at one point, they all, the officers say to him, aren't we helping the Japanese a bit much? Because they're helping them build the bridge. And he's like, well, you don't want the men's morale to go down, do you? Don't you see by giving them something to do? I wondered if some of the wounded with lighter wounds might do some light duties. Um, 
And it also gives you the doctor's point of view, who his point of view through the whole movie is he's a humanist and war is madness and that you're mad. You're mad for even taking fucking part in this fucking insanity of building this giant bridge that's going to allow the Japanese army to come through and dominate Asia and shit like that. So re and then William Holden plays the coward who is us in the movie, right? He's in the prison camp. He escapes from it. He gets all the way back. He's pretending to be an officer. He's, he's having a, an affair with this hot English nurse. And then they, which they show her leaving the tent and all the guys watching her leave, right? Which is that, you know, the walk, she does the walk of shame through an entire army camp. And except it's not a walk of shame because it's World War II. Guys are like, hey, hey, Bob, Bob. Uh, look at that doxy. And, um, but William, they ask him to go back and, and, and lead a, a mission into the jungle again with Jack Hawkins. And Jack Hawkins uh, is fantastic in the movie. He's like, go back. Uh, you'd be a bit, bit of help for us, eh? What? And William Holden goes, oh, jolly fucking good. Except he doesn't say fucking, but he's like, oh, jolly good. He can't believe the English are so willing to put their lives on the line all the time. But he forgets one thing about the English. Uh, however abstruse they are and however uh, imperialistic, they're inconceivably brave. They will march into a hail of fucking bullets wearing a red jacket and be like come on chaps <laughs> that's what you know like Prince Harry or whatnot. they're pretending he's going to get married now because they want him to quit taking his dick out and going to Vegas and having with <laughs> they're tired of the you know the, the coke laden man branch sessions or whatever's been going on in Vegas or whatever which is a disappointment to all the women of America but I will say this about Harry he volunteered to go to Iraq volunteered to go to Iraq and wanted combat duty and they were like are you out of your goddamn mind you're the prince of England you're like third in line for the throne if they kidnap you what the fuck are we supposed to do then uh, uh, the, the <laughs> prince, prince Harry was beheaded by a jihad yesterday and uh, <laughs> terribly sorry uh, it's so medieval as you know uh, famously, Richard the Lionhearted uh, never, ever, really didn't speak English much, tried to sell much of London, went off on the Crusades, and when he came back was kidnapped uh, on his way back from the Crusades. After beating Saladin, to his fucking, much to his credit, he beat Saladin, uh, who was a, a magnificent officer, and played both sides of the fucking fence. But the point is this. Um, Richard the Lionhearted was kidnapped and ransomed for all the fucking money in the world. And that's what they used to do with him in the Middle Ages. Uh, if you were kidnapped on the pitch, the best thing you could do was to pick up one of the other royals on, on the battlefield because you didn't ever kill them. You put them in a fucking room and gave them chicks and soup and whatnot. <laughs> or whatever you gave people in those days. <laughs> Joints of beef that they only ate with a knife because the spoon hadn't been invented yet or whatever. <laughs> no one wore underwear in those days. And <laughs> Is any era more revolting uh, 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 hygienically than the Elizabethan era. I mean, really? You're Scott, you're, you, people didn't, when they got up in the morning, they didn't like wash their face or take a bath. They would take pieces of cloth and like rub their hair with it and be like, okay, ready to go. <laughs> Aren't you going to take a bath? Ugh, water. It's full of vile pestilence, which it was uh, in England in those days. Ugh, kittens, McTavish. I, it's impossible to imagine what Elizabeth smelled like. I mean, the thing is, you think about the Romans, but the Romans bathe every day. I mean, everybody could go to the bath. It was cheap. It was free almost. Uh, you, and every people did. They went to the bath. You could have sex. You could get a sandwich. You could eat some olives. You <laughs> pick up some gossip. It was like having a cell phone. It really was. You did like, if, if your cell phone could boil with STDs, that's what like going to the Roman, Roman baths was like. It was a superb experience, I think, for everybody. 
there was guys there. They'd rub you down. They didn't have soap, right? The, the, uh, the Romans didn't have soap. So you'd go into the steam, right? First you're going to uh, uh, tepidarium, right? The warmish water. And then into the sauna or whatever. And then the frigidarium, right? The cold water. And then they'd take uh, olive oil and put it all over you. And then a slave would scrape it off you with a scraper. And then another slave would fucking do your eyebrows and take all the hair out of your ears and shit like that. And fucking do your, oh, fuck yeah. So when you came out, they were like, psh, psh, something for the weekend, sir. And you're like, I'm right. Here's a couple drachmas. Go get a toe guy like, you know, and you're like, <laughs> you'd fucking set out into Rome, right? But you'd be clean. Your nails would be clean. They, they're slaves who cut your nails and everything. I think they were fastidious. Uh, there was a book by Boris Johnson, who's an utter fascist and a somewhat buffoonish mayor of London. But on the other hand, he's quite a student of European history. And he wrote a book about uh, ancient Rome and what he keeps coming back to in the book again and again and again. And he's the meta, the, 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 uh, the thesis of the book is this, that the European Union, the EU, which is this big conglomeration of uh, countries that are supposed to have some sort of Pax Europa, right, and stand up against us and stand up against South America and, and Asia and whatnot, um, is like the Roman Empire because the borders are vaguely similar, okay? There you go. Right from England all the way to Syria, right, and from, you know, top Germany down to the Mediterranean and then on the bottom of the Mediterranean because the logo, uh, ancient Roman logo of the Zodiac of 12 things is the same logo as the European Union. And in the book, he talks about how they take baths all the time and how in Roman times you found nothing but tweezers and mirrors everywhere all the time and scissors. And then when the dark ages start in the three or four hundreds, there's no more tweezers. <laughs> For like 400 years. And Boris Johnson is like, and he keeps going back to it. And I'm like, I want to be that historian. The one who's like, no one cut their ear hair. <laughs> Charlemagne may have been magnificent, but God damn it. Couldn't he have groomed a little more? Somebody sent themselves with pine up in this thing. I don't want to carry an, an orange stuffed with cloves in it around with me all the time because someone's got a fucking pestilent boobo bursting near me while I'm trying to eat my fucking joint of mutton. You can dance, every dance with the guy. We should start. Um, so much to get to, but Bridge on the River Choir really is worth it. David Lean, all of David Lean's, well, all of his greatest movies. Without Great Expectations is a sensational movie. As we've gone over Lawrence of Arabia a thousand times in this fucking show, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. And as I said, I don't think a woman has a line of dialogue in Lawrence Arabia. However, you'll find the women that pop up in Bridge on the River Kwai, who are the Burmese women who help them through the jungle, are most important in it. Let's go to Lawrence Ferlinghetti here. This is a book called Poetry as Insurgent Art. I like to crack it out because once I, I think Lawrence Ferlinghetti is an American treasure, and I don't, as much as I love eulogizing people, uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti is still alive, and it's very important to honor the living while they're alive so that they know that someone appreciates them. Don't worry, he's being honored plenty. He goes all over Europe and gets medals everywhere he goes. Um, and Lawrence Ferlinghetti Getty wrote Coney Island of the Mind, which if you're my age was a book that you probably got in high school as one of your first poetry compendiums that you had to read. Uh, America's Book One, European Poems and Transitions, A Far Rockaway of the Heart was another very popular one. Um, he's written many books, but more importantly, he started City Lights with, uh, Jennifer, who's the cat who started City Lights with? The partner? Do you remember his name? No. But he started it with another cat in San Francisco. And when I say cat, I mean, you know, a groovy thing. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, in, in any case, uh, they published Howell, and uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti was the one who uh, paid for the obscenity trial that uh, Allen Ginsberg had to go through after that. And he also paid for Lenny Bruce's obscenity trial uh, in San Francisco as well. Lawrence Ferlinghetti has been a staunch defender of civil rights his entire career and a lovely human being. I got to smoke a joint with him once. Yeah, you're fucking right. Doug Benson. 
asked me today who the most famous person I ever smoked a joint with. I did a show with Doug today called Getting Doug with High, and uh, <laughs> where, which accounts for my scattered state of mind, I think. I'd like to blame it on that. We sat in a television studio in Culver City, just down the road from where they shot The Wizard of Oz, and smoked dope for 45 minutes solid and just rattled on about stuff. One of the questions was, what's your favorite movie to watch when you're high? And I said, well, in the old days, uh, when we lived in San Francisco, uh, um, when Jennifer and I lived in San Francisco, we, I, I would, I had, we had a VHS copy of Help, and I would come home from gigs really high and just fucking put Help on and watch it every night. <laughs> and awesomely, Doug went, that movie's so great. And then we started going through every fucking scene in Help, right? You know? And the one I wanted to get to is when they're in the studio and, and it's Ringo and he's got a cigarette in his mouth and the light's all blue because Richard Lester's a genius director. And the Beatles are there and the, and the engineer comes on and goes, you're going to lose that girl. Take one. And they go, t you're gonna lose that girl and you can see the spit coming out of their mouths and Ringo smoking through the whole fucking song it is so cool and then Willy Wonka was the other one we decided on not Willy Wonka by Tim Burton Charlie and the Chocolate Factory by Mel Stewart which has more good lines than any movie in the history of mankind, including my favorite one, which I've said on the show before, but God damn it, I'm repeating myself tonight because I've been smoking Doug with high all day. Uh, which is, uh, the, the raspberries taste like raspberries. The snozberries taste like a snozberry. There's no such thing as a snozberry. <laughs> we are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. Wandering by lone sea breakers and sitting by desolate streams. World losers and world forsakers on whom the pale moon gleams, yet we are the movers and shakers of the world forever, it seems. He doesn't say the whole poem, but... To quote Arthur Shaughnessy to a ten-year-old brat is fantastic. This is what Ferlinghetti says. Because I'm always talking about poetry on the show, and poetry is important. Why is it important, Greg? Because life is an endless series of fucking John Boehner's cock-blocking you. <laughs> It's an arid Sufi desert devoid of humanity. It's a fucking poisonous rainfall of shards of obsidian smashing down upon your heart. It's hideous to career choices that you regret the rest of your lives. It's relationships you enter on with every fucking possibility of failure at the very outset, and yet you dash into it like a fucking albino bat through a cave as swift as you can to your own fucking demise against a sticky-ass stalagmite where they find you centuries later struggling in your death throes. That's why poetry helps alleviate that shit. We live in a world where Dick Cheney walks around and does whatever he fucking wants. And that's why poetry is important, ladies and gentlemen, because George W. Bush was president. That's why poetry is important. Yeah, you fucking heard me. Because Vladimir Putin gets to go on TV and talk about stuff and people have to go, yes, sir, Mr. Putin, sir. Because Donald Trump is invited to share his thoughts. <laughs> There's no reason for it. It's revolting. Uh, because I was watching the news this morning and uh, 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 they were showing a promo for Survivor because it was uh, whatever, the news. And like, really? Survivor is not news. The fact that it's the 20 million season of Survivor and they're like, and they had a guy a reporter in Puerto Rico and he goes, well, this is Survivor, but with a twist. <laughs> oh, you mean it's going to mean something to my life this time? <laughs> is that the twist? If a bunch of fucking unbelievable, underachieving, fame hoary douchebags want to fuck it out on an island... <laughs> I suggest we make it like Lord of the Flies. 
kill the pig, spill his blood. Kill the pig, spill his blood. Yeah. I want to see none at the end. Just heads on pikes. You know what I'm talking about? I've been on the island 18 days. What are you wearing around your neck? This is a scapular of ears. That fucking bitch Jeanette from Iowa tried to cross me two nights ago for a sea urchin. These are her nipples. Next week on Survivor. Yeah, I ate his beating heart out of his chest because it gave me power to fight the fish. I'm afraid I can't have our men doing that kind of detail. You will eat the papaya. Lawrence Ferlinghetti said, don't be so open-minded that your brains fall out. Become a new mind and make it newer. Sweep away the cobwebs. Cultivate dissidence and critical thinking. I'm going to read that one again. Cultivate dissidence. Dissidence means not consonants. Consonants means I agree. Uh, a concord is the act of uh, uh, making everything right with everything else. Dissidence is the act of seeing what's in front of you and going, I don't agree with that. Here's my idea. And critical thinking. First thought may be worst thought. In other words, reactionaries who react to something that's initially boom in their face. Uh, the people who yell, you don't like America! <laughs> Oprah the other day, and I don't even think of Oprah as a reactionary. I just think of her as a free-floating rich person with no connection to the rest of us. She's like a blimp that goes over the earth that just cars fall out of and money and, and crappy projects and shit like I'm going to build a girls school that there's going to be no oversight for aren't I great I'm going to put Dr. Oz and Dr. Phil on the air and very few and their opinions will be kind of half baked and shitty and I hope no one dies but I put doctor on it so it's healing and whatnot. Uh, I appreciate what she tries to do and I appreciate that she's a black woman who came from the poorest part of the fucking country and all of that but um, uh, she had uh, Diana Nyad on her show the other day who granted is uh, uh, how do we put this uh, working in another mindset uh, she's the one who uh, swam across the English Channel she's kind of a hero and she's an, an insanely marvelous athlete with amazing capabilities she's, she's, she's what? Oh, I'm sorry. What did I say? The English Channel? I meant from, I meant from Florida uh, to uh, uh, Cuba. She, she swam from Cuba to Florida. And, and she didn't use a little Shark Tank thing, did she? No, she was awesomely didn't do that. And they suck up gasoline the whole way. First of all, I was talking about it the other day because I've been talking about Niagara Falls. With the, why would you go over Niagara Falls on a barrel? What kind of heedless... What? I mean, I like thrills. But for me, getting high and like fast-forwarding through the commercials of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is about as hot as it's going to get sometimes. <laughs> I, I appreciate that she swam from Cuba to Florida. I think it's an amazing... But I also think she's kind of mad. And I mean that in a good way. But she was on Oprah's show and she said, I don't believe... I'm an atheist. And Oprah went, uh, anyone who believes in awe and wonder can't be an atheist. And it's like, anyone who sets parameters up like that can't be someone who uses cognitive thinking. Uh, <laughs> wow. You're going to impose your weird, antiquated belief system on Diana Nyad? Why don't you wait till someone coherent comes on the fucking show? Or why don't you find another James Gray and build them up, Buttercup, and then slam them down? 
she she promotes reading. That's all that's important. I was watching the show a couple years ago. I haven't watched it since it's just on the O channel or whatever, although I enjoy O's as much as any other man. Um, mine just come quicker and they're more profound. Uh, she, I was watching her show several years ago and she did a whole show about Steinbeck and the whole audience is like, Steinbeck? Is that Jewish? And then like she explained it and shit and she went through Mice and Man and East of Eden and all that and I thought, good for you because Steinbeck is a, a fully legitimate. Uh, cultivate distant and critical thinking. First thought may be worst thought. So a, a reactionary thought like that, like you, you, oh, you can't be an atheist because you believe in awe and wonder. Um, guess what? Animals can be odd. And they don't have any belief system, as far as I know. You know what I'm saying? If you've ever seen a monkey look at the burning forest and go, <gasps> you know what I'm saying? Like, when, when, the, when the tsunami hit Asia, there were elephants that went, <gasps> you know? I can't make an elephant noise. I can't make an elephant noise. <gasps> I can't make an elephant noise. Fuck. Though we march and crush through the underbrush. I can do this. I can do the song from the Jungle Book. With a military style. Uh, pursue the white whale, but don't harpoon it. Catch its song instead. Ah, how about that one? Although I, I have to catch the white whale. Why, Greg? He tasks me. <laughs> Heave ho, boys. Into the boat. Steady on, Mr. Starbuck. He beckons. Can't you see he beckons? Uh, resist much. Obey less. Challenge capitalism masquerading as democracy. And then this one I thought was a super cracker. Uh, laugh at all of those who tell you poetry is all written by the Holy Ghost and you're just a ghost writer. And this one I liked a lot. Don't ever believe poetry is irrelevant in dark times. Uh, that one is a giddy. I'm going to, just to balance things out, I'm going to read you a quote from Neil Ferguson. Really, Greg? Neil Ferguson? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am. I bought this book at an airport. Uh, Neil Ferguson lately has been taking on the whole government shut. Oh, what, do I, what can I say about Neil Ferguson? Here, let me read a little off the blurb on the back. Uh, how, uh, 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 surely he has a bio here. Neil Ferguson is one of the world's most renowned historians. Says fucking who? Oh, Penguin. Uh, he is the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of History at Harvard University, a senior research fellow at Jesus College, Oxford, and a senior research fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University. Now, let me just go back over that last part there to give you an idea of which way his history leans. He is a senior research fellow of Jesus College, Oxford, and a senior research fellow of the Hoover Institution. If you know anything about the Hoover Institution, you know that the Hoover Institution does not promote Amy Goodman's democracy now. Uh, let me just put it that way. They're on the other side of that fence. So that's where Neil's coming from. Uh, he wrote a lot of books, and uh, he's quite intelligent. There's no question of this. And I enjoyed this book up until about three-quarters of the way through, at which point I killed myself. <laughs> this book is called Civilization, the West and the Rest. And this is his thesis, and this is the part that made me want to kill myself. How did the West overtake its Eastern rivals, right? Now, the, the, pre, the, pre, the, the, the thesis, the precept of the book being, um, uh, uh, the, obviously, uh, 500 years ago, uh, 700 years ago, Islam was dominant, right? When there was the same architecture all the way from Baghdad uh, uh, to Cordoba and all the way through northern Africa, through the Maghreb, right, and through Africa, and that they had all of the mathematicians and 
all of the scientists, and they invented dessert and poetry and eating oranges with your hands and uh, and and keeping baboons in a cage and 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 sailing and the whole and the zero and all those things that the Islamic world gave uh, via Asia to the European world, and then of course came uh, the last several hundred years where uh, they women weren't educated there, they never had an equal chance, and we sort of swept by them until the oil came in the in the twentieth century, and then uh, the Islamic countries started to gain ground again and got a foothold, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know the story. I just wanted you to tell you the thesis of the book. Has the zenith of Western power now passed? Question mark. Acclaimed historian Neil Ferguson argues that the beginning in the 15th century, that would be your 1400s. I realize I don't want to be patronizing or as the English would say patronizing. Um, but uh, a lot of people don't know how the centuries are ordered that way and you hear it your whole life and no one ever fucking tells you I'm here to tell you that the century that they're talking about is the century ahead of the one that the years are so the 15th century is the 1400s what were the 1400s Greg Leonardo da Vinci Michelangelo was born Columbus happened at the end of the century uh, a lot of corrupt popes um, <laughs> China was huge uh, they had a giant fleet that went around the world. Uh, they had enormous boats that were 25 si uh, times the size of the Spanish caravels that came to the New World. And don't even start me on Columbus because it was Columbus Day this week and shit like that. The West developed six powerful new concepts. Now, I'm down with the explanation of the book so far. But this is how you can tell that this book was written in the last... Let me just see when it was written. I'm going to guess the last couple of years here. And I don't want Neil Ferguson to call me because he'll eviscerate me intellectually. Uh, 2011. Um, the West developed six powerful new concepts competition, science, the rule of law modern medicine, consumerism and the work ethic now that's a thesis that's not solid facts and that's not the truth that's what Neil Ferguson thinks the six concepts that made the West go by the East are and when I say the East I mean Islam and when I say Islam I mean Islam <laughs> but this is what he calls them in the book through the whole fucking book killer applications and then he shortens it to killer apps yeah so he calls the concepts of consumerism the work ethic modern medicine and the rule of law apps because everyone has a smartphone now and he wanted to hip up the book I feel like it's like watching the movie Johnny Dangerously from the 80s and it's set in the 30s and then all of a sudden they break dance in the middle of it and you're like As I said about the movie The Great Gatsby, when you watch it in 20 years' time and you hear Jay-Z, you're going to go, oh. <laughs> and when you read the book Civilization in 20 years and you see the word killer apps, when the, the word app won't even be in use anymore, we'll be calling them, you know, Zam 45s by then or whatever. <laughs> now, he covers a lot of good points. He really does. And there's a lot of amazing pictures and it's vaguely racist. Um... <laughs> Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. The end of Western predominance, colon. President Barack Obama bows to Chinese Premier Wen Jiaobu, November 2009. You tell me where that's coming from. Here's the best. No, yeah, yeah, this is the best. This is the, this is the paragraph I wanted to hear. It has a, a brilliant chapter on Frederick the Great. And I didn't know that much about Frederick the Great, but I, I learned a lot from this book about it. And his father was, um, 
you know, uh, king as well. And this is Prussia. This is before Germany's Germany. Frederick the Great uh, had an enormously militarized state where literally everyone was militarized in the state. However, it wasn't a grand imperial court. And this is the 18th century. That would be the 1700s. So it w- wasn't like uh, all the pomp and circumstance. He wore a threadbare military outfit that was stained with uh, uh, snuff, apparently, and said to his wife, who he didn't care for that much, Madame has grown fatter. <laughs> Uh, however, Frederick the Great was open-minded and had a policy – here we go uh, – uh, freedom and foreigners. Prussia experienced a cultural boom marked by the founding of new reading societies, discussion groups, bookshops, journals, and scientific societies. He professed himself to despise Germans, preferring to write in French and speak German only to his horse. That's good for your story writing. Frederick's reign saw a surge in new publications. It was under his rule that Immanuel Kant emerged as perhaps the greatest philosopher of the 18th century in his critique of pure reason, 1781, probing the very nature and limitations of human rationality, living and working throughout his life at the Albertina University in Königsberg. I don't think Kant ever left Königsberg. Uh, Kant was even more austere than the king, taking his daily walks so punctually, locals set their watches by him. It mattered not what, and if you know anything about Monty Python, Emmanuel Kant was a real pissant who was very rarely stable. Hi, Digger, I Digger, Benedictine Vigor, who could drink you under the table. David Hume could outconsume Wilkins Hard and Schlegel. And what? Uh, Viral Twardy was just a slot of Schlegel. There's nothing, there's nothing Nietzsche couldn't teach you about the raising of the rest. Socrates himself was permanently pissed. Um, John Stuart Mill of his own free and well drinking. Uh, what? Not to, it matter the, that, that the great thinker was the grandson of a Scottish saddlemaker. What mattered was the quality of his mind rather than his birth. That's what we call egalitarianism in this day. Mind you, they were both white guys. Uh, nor did it bother Frederick that one of Kant's intellectual near equals, Moses Mendelssohn, was a Jew. Christianity, the king remarked sardonically, and this is, my, this is something Frederick the Great said, and I just wanted to read this quote to you because of what Oprah said to Diane and I had this week. Frederick the Great said, and as uh, uh, if you have ever seen the movie Patton, uh, when the screenplay was written by uh, uh, um, Coppola and someone else wrote it with Coppola and Schaffner directed it. Uh, there's several quotes about Frederick the Great in the movie. At one point, one of the generals goes, we can't fight, General. The men are tired or whatever. And he goes, uh, you're a good man. Uh, George E. Scott goes, you're a good man, Lucian, but you want to remember what Frederick the Great says. And at this point, they all look at him like, what the fuck? <laughs> this is the middle of a war and you're quoting Frederick the Great. And he goes, l'audace, l'audace, toujours l'audace. Because Frederick the Great wrote in French, as we just discovered, he detested German. That means audacious, always audacious. Um, and uh, Frederick the Great said this about Christianity. It was stuffed with miracles, contradictions, and absurdities, was spawned in the fevered imaginations of the Orientals, and then spread to our Europe, where some fanatics espoused it, some intriguers pretended to be convinced by it, and some imbeciles actually believed it. <laughs> <laughs> We're so full of intriguers and imbeciles in this country. (laughs) We really, really are. Uh, Let's take a quick break to talk about me. 
Um, I have a new video out on chill.com. It's called Live at Musa and Franks. I shot it at Musa and Franks. There's several people in this room who were here at that taping. Uh, we had a great day that day. We drank all afternoon. Musa and Franks is the oldest restaurant in Hollywood. It was built in 1919. Charlie Chaplin used to drink there. Lauren Bacall drank there. Um, Raymond Chandler purportedly wrote The Big Sleep in a very damp booth there. Uh, Bukowski drank there. Faulkner drank there. Hemingway drank there. I don't know when you need a first name from me, quite frankly. Uh, uh, John Fonte drank there. It, it was uh, Robert Mitchum convinced Jim Thompson uh, to be in um, A Murder, My Sweet in England. Uh, I believe Jim Thompson was drinking there when he wrote the screenplays to uh, the, uh, the Killing and um, uh, uh, the fan- fabulous Kirk Douglas movie about World War I. Um, help me. Pass of Glory. Uh, it's an extraordinary restaurant, and no one cares if you drink in the daytime there. They open at 11, and they close at 11, and they serve breakfast till 3, because mornings are harsh. <laughs> so I mentioned it today to someone, and they said my, that they went there and have breakfast, and my wife and I will go there and have breakfast. Get you a mess of hash browns and get the flannel cakes, too. Isn't that a lot of carbos, Greg? Um, how much did you drink last night? <laughs> There's only two things that cure hangovers, and you know what they are. Half a codeine, some weed, and a shitload of hash browns. <laughs> Don't even fuck about. If you have the time. Uh, and anyway, it's, uh, if you go to chill.com slash proops, you can order it. I think it's five ninety nine and whatnot. Um, or you can go to gregproops.com, and that giant thing pops up, and I fucking do a preview for you. Um, it's called Live at Musso and Frank. I'm kind of happy with it, so please. If you want to hashtag it on Twitter, it's Proops at Musso. And that's not with an, an – um, how do you – you know what, what do they call those little ands? It's not that. It's, it's, what is it called? Not an ampersand. With an at's in a circle. Oh, it's just at sign? Well, it's not that. It's Proops, A-T-M-U-S-S-M. If you want to write me, fanmanforgreg at gmail.com. I wrote a bunch of people back today. Aren't you proud of yourself, Greg? And if you want to ask a question, <laughs> smartest at a special thing.com. We're going to have questions again, aren't we? Sure. Sure, sure says Ryan. Uh, we'll be at the Cine Family on the 30th. Will this be out before then? Uh, mm, uh, might be. In any case, I'll tell you uh, people here. Uh, at the Cine Family on October 30th, which is uh, Halloween Eve Eve, We'll be showing Eyes Without a Face by George Franju, uh, which is a, an exquisite French uh, horror classic from 1959. I've not seen it. My wife's seen it. She chose it. And uh, in fact, she's chosen a lot of the last ones. Oh, no, I picked Lifeboat. Uh, but Jennifer picked, uh, uh, we showed the Alain Delon, um, Le Samurai, and we showed um, uh, Dog Day Afternoon. And, and Jennifer picked Taking a Pelham 123, which is pretty exciting when your wife says, let's watch Pelham 123. <laughs> I think a lot of guys would be like, a little tear rolls down your face and shit like that. Because I'm always like, let's watch Willy Wonka. Let's watch Thelma and Louise, you know. I've got my hair in curlers and shit. I'm doing a steam bath, you know. I'm doing a facial. I've got cucumbers on my face and whatnot. Let's watch fried green tomatoes again. I can't get all the way through Mystic Pizza. I'm afraid you'll find this pizza's not quite as mystic as you imagined it. Uh, 
We'll be at the Bar Lubitsch, which is right here on the 6th of November. Uh, and then we'll be in Calgary, Canada at the last cup on the 14th and also doing stand-up all that weekend. We'll be in Boston. And I have shit on Boston more than any other city outside of Missouri. <laughs> Missouri's not a city. Who cares? <laughs> but I'm going to Boston and we're going to make amends. We're going to lick each other's wounds. Unless Boston carries on into the next round and beats Detroit. As of this broadcast, Boston has not yet bested Detroit in the national in the American League playoffs. Uh, if they go to the World Series and play St. Louis again, as Kelly and I were discussing before the show, fuck this and fuck that. Um, St. Louis is the best baseball team in the last 10 years. There's no question of it. They've been oh, six pennants, I think it is, or six times in the postseason. A couple World Series. I mean, they're dominant. Uh, Boston has a couple wins. After the first Boston World Series, I called all my Boston friends. When they beat the Yankees in the playoffs, I called them, and I said, congratulations, and they all wept tears of joy. After the second World Series win, I was like, okay. After they beat the fucking... Uh, and won a bunch more Super Bowls with that fucking douchebag Tom Brady. I was like, no. And then when they beat... <laughs> Yeah, when they beat the Canucks for the Stanley Cup, then I was like, this is when I put my foot down. <laughs> I don't know if you see all that Steven Seagal movie where they killed everyone in his family, but he waited until every single member of his family was dead and then he took revenge. That's where I'm coming from. I'm like Pat Swayze. Not in Roadhouse, but the other one, Next of Kin. Yeah. They killed my cousin. Then they killed my cousin's cousin. When Boston kills everybody, fuck you, Boston. <laughs> I'm going to wear high-waisted jeans. I'm going to wear high-waisted jeans. If Boston wins the World Series, this is going to be the worst podcast in the history of mankind because I am going to lay into them. If they don't win the World Series, it's going to be all about Frederick Douglass and Sam Adams and shit like that. There's more to, there's more to fighting than rest. There's character. You should have seen our men yesterday. We were a sight to see. Thank you. <laughs> I love the 54th. 54th, the only family I got. The first black uh, regiment in the American army was from Massachusetts. The 54th black. Uh, 54th. Uh, they were in the army. The 54th Massachusetts, led by white officers, of course, as played by Matthew Broderick and Carrie Ewas <laughs> in the movie. That's who I was doing just then. I don't want to carry your flag. It's considered quite an honor. I'm doing a Boston accent through this whole movie. We'll be in Boston the 21st of November at, the, at a place called Laughs. Uh, and then I'll be doing stand-up all weekend there. And uh, I'll be eating cannoli. Because that's what they got in Boston. On the 30th, we'll be in Brooklyn at the Bell House. Uh, again, in the, in the Go Anus neighborhood. <laughs> And then December 2nd and 8th, we'll be at the Soho Theater in London. We're trying to hook up a European gig. Uh, we're working on it. Might be Germany. I don't know about Amsterdam. If anyone's out there listening and they hear this and you have a gig in Germany or Holland or, or Denmark or Sweden or whatever, I'll fucking do it. Fucking email me at fanmail4greg at gmail.com. But be legit. Don't be a fucking twerp. <laughs> don't email me and go, you should really come to Borneo. We have some great clubs here. No, you fucking don't. But I'd like to nip over from England when we're there, and it's a groovy time to do that. We'll also be uh, uh, New Year's uh, week, and from the 28th, 
uh, to the 31st at the Punchline in San Francisco. And we'll be doing uh, our po- our uh, podcast there. The vodcast will be on the 20. 20- I don't know what day the Monday is. We'll be doing the Monday will be the podcast. Strangely, Sunday we're going to do two shows of stand-up, but the Monday we're going to do the podcast. It'll be fun. And then I'm on the road with the Who's Line guys. By the time this airs, we'll have done uh, Anal Cortez in Portland. But... Uh, when we come back and this one's airing, we'll be in Illinois, Missouri. Yeah, you fucking heard me. <laughs> we'll be in Missouri. Uh, and then we're going to be in Chico and Santa Rosa uh, to end the year out. I also want to thank everyone who's had me on in the last few weeks. Uh, all the other podcasters have been uh, generous most with me and uh, generous most with their time and helping me promote the video and all the other fabulous shit that's going on. Joe Rogan and the Joe Rogan experience. I spent two and a half stoned hours over there in that fucking hutch uh, losing my shit. And it was fantastic. Joe is a, a seeker. Mm. I went to Ventura County, which is against all precepts that belong to me and every, everything that I feel is right about America. Yes, I went to Ventura County anyway because Adam Carolla was doing a live podcast out there. And there were more people with leathery skin who worked for airlines than I've ever seen in one room. Many of whom you could tell didn't care for the Affordable Health Care Act. I want to thank you, Adam. Uh, Chris Hardwick, I did the Nerdist show with him and Jonah, and it was mad fun. Uh, Doug Benson, I've done Doug Loves Movies and Getting Doug with High, and uh, wow, Doug, what can I say about you? I would hold you, but you're slippery. Um, also, Greg Fitzsimmons and his uh, Fitzdog Radio. Allison Rosen is my new best friend. She's a love chop sent from heaven, uh, exclamation point, as Victor Borga would say. Uh, Kevin Pollock uh, and Kevin Pollock's Shot Show, uh, and he is a, a delightful small man who you can see in a, a movie called Willow, if you want to go back. <laughs> now, he's in dozens of movies. He's in Avalon. He's in Casino. He's in, Lo- he's in The Usual Suspects. He's in some superb movies. But Willow. <laughs> Him and Rick Overton are out of proportion and they've been, like, rotoscoped into the movie. And it has Joanne Wally Kilmer and Val Kilmer when they were married. Do yourself a favor. If you were thinking, should I watch The Dark Crystal this weekend again? Or should I watch Labyrinth? Go Willow. <laughs> uh, uh, Duncan Trussell and the Duncan Trussell Family Hour. Uh, he's a lovely man. And uh, the fabulous Jay Moore, uh, who uh, is all that and a bag of mega muffins. Let's get in to the pre... Oh, no, let's start the show. Here we go. Uh, these are letters that people have wrote to me, written to me on the fan mail for greg at gmail.com. Uh, hey, Greg. Uh, This is from Lars. I don't give out the last names, but I will give you that this was uh, what he wrote after his name. Lars, last name, Project Engineer Wireless Solutions. Does he wear a weird crispy blue hat and have a name tag? One wonders. Certainly when he walks by certain uh, checkpoints, he has to go... If you're a project engineer in charge of wireless solutions, there's no button pushing. Hey, Greg, this is from the last podcast. Don't mean to be a dick, but Klaus Van Bula was Danish, not German. I really enjoy your podcast. All right. I don't mean to be a dick, but I think you'll find no one gives a shit. (laughs) I looked it up and he was born. He was born in Denmark. But he grew up in Germany and shit. <laughs> Lars, I think you're confusing the point. 
It's not so much that I was born in Denmark. It's that I was raised in Germany. What do you give a woman who has everything? Insulin. <laughs> now I think I'll have my own order of shrimp. And then Ron, Ron Perlman says to him, not Ron Perlman. Ron Silver. Ron Silver, thank you. Ron Sil- if Ron Perlman had said it, it would have been great. It was Ron Silver. You're a very strange man. Jeremy Irons rolls the window down and goes, you have no idea. Uh, thank you, Lars, for pointing that out. He was, in fact, born in Denmark. Um, one, the daughter, I believe, is on his side. The son isn't. I can't remember. Uh, you know, he's still alive, by the way. Uh, Klaus von Bülow. Still alive and well. Mm. I know. Hooray. Uh, this is from, uh, uh, let's see, the SF Gate. And it was my favorite story of the week. My wife gave it to me. A 72-year-old San Francisco man was recovering Sunday after he spent 19 days lost in a remote canyon of Mendocino County. <laughs> now, we've often vacationed in Mendocino County. And there are remote places to go there. I find that I'm usually near the Cowgirl Creamery. <laughs> or a marijuana dispensary or a wine store. I find that the Mendocino County places I go are like the Strauss Dairy and whatnot. Uh, I don't, you know, really. Don't go to remote parts of Mendocino County. Go to where there's, oh, oh, there's a cheese tasting. (laughs) And this is what he survived on. Squirrels, lizards, and berries, and wrapping himself in leaves and grass to stay warm, like Walt Whitman. Gene Penaflor, thank you, was on a hunting, good for you, Ryan was on a hunting trip with a friend September 24th in the Bloody Rock area of Mendocino National Forest when he apparently wandered from the road, hit his head, and passed out. He later told rescuers. I love newspaper writing. <laughs> he later told rescuers he hit his head and passed out. He later told rescuers. When he awoke, fog had rolled in and Penaflor became disoriented. Where am I? I huh, what were common landmarks before are now obscured by mist. <laughs> His friend alerted the Mendocino County Sheriff's Office the next morning. Hey, get right on it. <laughs> Where's Gene been all night? Ah, fuck it. He's wandering around the Bloody Rock area. Nothing bad could happen there. It has such a genial and unprepossessing name. Well, you just walk past Suicide Point right down to the Doug... Right down to Satan's asshole. I think you'll be all right. The gaping jaws of the abyss are right down at the bottom there. It's nice. It's nice. There's like a little daisy farm and whatnot. There's tide pools. No, it's, it's fun. No... It's, it's, it's adjacent to the door to the other universe where you're eaten consistently for over the ages by a series of minnows that gnaw at you ceaselessly. We haven't given it a name yet. The next morning, Penaflor was missing. The search and rescue teams from 18 agencies descended on the area to look for him. I'm guessing that's almost everyone in Mendocino County. On Saturday, a group of hunters in the area reported they'd heard someone in the canyon calling for help. 
What's that unearthly noise I hear coming through the fog? My God, there's a man who's disoriented down there with a mouthful of lizards. <laughs> Using the hunter's GPS coordinates from their cell phones, search and rescue teams headed for the wooded, rugged site in the Yuki wilderness. Rugged. <laughs> Meanwhile, oh my God, it's practically the surface of the moon there. Me I don't think it's very funny. <laughs> you had to survive on lizards and berries. <laughs> Meanwhile, the hunters created a makeshift stretcher from coats and poles and headed into the canyon to rescue the man who identified himself as Penaflor. I am Penaflor. <laughs> from the north. <laughs> they were carrying Penaflor up the hillside when they met the search and rescue crews. Penaflor was found three and a quarter miles from where his friend had last seen him. He survived by staying under a log during cold spells, including several snowfalls, and catching squirrels, lizards, and other small animals for food. Water was plentiful in the area, he told Mendocino County Sheriff's deputies. We'd like to... Much... There is much water in this area. Yeah, it's a forest on the north coast, covered in fog. There's fucking water everywhere. What the point is, is this to me, uh, and the sheriff, uh, Lieutenant Shannon Barney said, we'd like to thank the group of hunters who went above and beyond. Their quick thinking was critical in his being returned alive to his family. He's 72 years old. By the way, the point missing from this article is he was out there 19 fucking days and lived on lizards and berries and shit like that. When I call room service at the Sheraton Four Points... <laughs> I told a story two podcasts ago about a room service call I made at the hotel in Enoch, Alberta, at the casino. Because I call, I put first I put the breakfast card out. That was completely ignored. Breakfast never arrived. So I ring downstairs. Then they're like, it's going to take a while. So I'm like, okay, don't, don't worry about it. I know I put a card out. Never mind the breakfast. I'm going to take a shower. I got in the shower. When I got in the shower, the doorbell knocked. And yeah, it was like Orwell. The, the clock struck 13. I answered and I had soap all in my hair and in my eyes like Gidget and shit. And I actually just went, fuck it, and opened the door from the shower like this. Just male breasts covered in foam and shit. And the guy's like, here's your room service. I'm like, we had five phone calls about this. I would never be able to kill a lizard or a berry. If the snow fell and I was outside and I wasn't wearing a parka, I would cry myself to death. <laughs> I, I would wrap myself in self-pity and I would try to keep warm in that until penetrating regret took over and I died of revulsion. <laughs> That's how I would stay warm in the wilderness. I wouldn't even know how to build... What was it? He, he, he survived staying under a log... Yuck! <laughs> Have you ever seen a grub? <laughs> They're like... <laughs> they go into your ear and then they cross across your brain. You can say they don't, but they fucking do. <laughs> and what about my Prada shoes? 
The Mendocino County Sheriff's Department would like to thank the hunters for saving Greg's protégés. They became damp during the ordeal. Greg had to live on two-day-old blueberry waffles that were purloined from a toaster nearby. I would be down in people's campsites so much like a grizzly bear, just fucking digging meatballs out of their coolers. Good for you, Gene Penaflor. Uh, here's a more serious note. Jennifer writes me, not my wife, another woman named Jennifer. Greg, yes, Jennifer. I'm the one who tweeted the Marge Piercy poem, Right to Life, which I read a couple weeks ago on the show. It was about get off my dick if you're a woman and, and stop telling me what I can do with my body. Uh, was, she lives in Tulsa or lived in Tulsa. I was 16 and living in Tulsa and three of my friends had already gotten pregnant and had babies. I'd like to read that. I'd like to read it to the Congress of America. I'd like to read it to the governors of Texas, Ohio, North Carolina, Tennessee. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Arkansas, North Dakota. Uh, three of my friends had already gotten pregnant and had babies. She was 16 years old and living in Tulsa. Believe me, they believe in the Lord in Tulsa and shit like that. Moving on, we're coming back to Jennifer's letter. This is from two days ago, the Los Angeles Times. Yes, I have an actual Los Angeles Times in my hand here. Not the one online, but look, a piece of paper. Uh, I, I was over at Jan's Coffee Shop and they keep them in a box behind the counter. Uh, Thursday, October 10th. Law aims to boost access to abortions. Sacramento byline uh, Governor Brown signs bills to allow more providers given California women uh, more access to abortion Governor Jerry Brown signed a bill Wednesday that allows nurse practitioners and certain other non-physicians to perform the procedure during the first trimester of pregnancy the governor acted on 32 bills in all Assemblywoman Tony Atkins Democrat San Diego introduced the abortion measure because of concern that not enough physicians perform abortions especially in rural areas to meet the needs of women seeking to terminate a pregnancy yeah. Notice there's not one mention of Jesus or anything like that in this fucking article here. We're talking about hard, cold facts about what's going on for real. Our 70-something-year-old governor acted on a bill introduced by Tony Atkins, a Democrat from San Diego, uh, and that's what's what. Timely access to reproductive health services is critical to women's health, Atkins said in a statement. Timely access to reproductive health services is critical to women's health. In other words, when you restrict women's access to reproductive health services, i.e., uh, what's happened in Texas where they have to drive hours and hours and hours, and they were talking about particularly rural women and poor women, because rich women, by the goddamn way, can always get whatever the medical procedures they want at all times, as can all rich people at all times. Just understand that. Um, Brown nor his uh, staff would accept comment on the acceptance of the bill, blah, blah, blah. The measure requires the non-physicians to complete specified training. And then, of course, uh, comes the anti-abortion... Uh, oh, I lost the other page of it. Uh, it's from a person named Wynat Sills, and they're executive director of the Coalition for Women and Children, a group that opposes abortion. Notice how the anti-choice groups that are not for women and children at all always call themselves the groups for women and children. She said, it's very disappointing, particularly from a women's health standpoint. Because women will be able to get abortions when they want to all over California. Having just read that... I will continue on with this letter from Jennifer where she mentions that three of her 16-year-old girlfriends were already pregnant. Our assignment for drama class was to memorize and perform a poem in front of the class. So I went to the library and started going through the card catalog. Her book, Marge Piercy, was entitled The Moon is Always Female. 
and something about the title tugged at me. I was transfixed by her word. She talked about women from the inside, all the things I thought and felt and was terrified to express because I was living in the same city as Oral Roberts University and the word slut might as well be tattooed on your forehead, not just stitched on your bodice. So I memorized it, more like carved it on my heart, stood in front of the class and expressed myself. It was frightening and freeing and I got an A with a note that I might want to modulate my voice next time. <laughs> and she awesomely writes here, always the goddamn tone argument, right? <laughs> Thank you so much for reading it on the Proopcast. She was the one who sent it to me, Jennifer. It makes me happy that it's still out there swirling about straightening the spines and strengthening the wills of women everywhere. P.S. I did move away from Tulsa and it was the best thing I've ever done. This is from the well done you, Jennifer, and well done all the women out there who are fighting for right uh, out there in uh, what we call the Bible in the Rust Belt. Um, uh, it's very difficult for them out there, and uh, they need all our love and support at all times, as do women all over the world who are fighting uh, in, in India and all over. Uh, the Smithsonian, this is an article from this week. Ancient women artists may be responsible for most cave art. If you saw a movie called The Cave of Forgotten Dreams by Werner Herzog, uh, he shows a cave in France where there's dozens and dozens of handprints on the wall there, right? And it's the usual Werner Herzog, even though the handprints are on the wall. I find that. And then at the end, when I remember I, I talked about it before, the alligator at the end of the movie. And I wondered if the alligator thinks about it. No. 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 I don't care how creative a director you are. Placing thoughts in the mind of a reptile is not appropriate at this juncture. I don't think alligators consider the human condition at all. Even cinematically. I didn't write this, so forgive me when I read it. Since cave art often depicts game species, a subject near and dear to hunters, most researchers have assumed that the people behind this mysterious artwork must have been male. There are 45 assumptions in that sentence. Thank you. But new research suggests that's not right. C colon. When scientists looked closely at a sample of hand stencils, a common motif in cave art, they concluded about three quarters were actually drawn by women. What they looked at specifically was the length of fingers and drawings from eight caves in France and Spain, National Geographic rights. Or rather, National Geographic rights, what they looked at was the length of fingers and drawings from eight caves in France and Spain specifically. Biologists establish rules of thumb. <laughs> I hope Tom Robbins didn't establish them, otherwise the thumbs will be inordinately large. <laughs> For general differences between men and women's hand structures about a decade ago. Well, thank God those established rules were put down. I need to know where the goalposts are, considering men's and women's hand sizes. Thank you, biologists. Women tend to have ring and index fingers of about the same length, whereas men's ring fingers tend to be longer than their index fingers. No. Yeah? Is it? No, my ring finger. You're right, it is. On my right hand, it is. On my left hand, about equal. Yeah. Interesting. No, I'm not, and I'm not left-handed, but I wear my watch on my right hand because I, I detest wearing it on my left hand. It's because I want to be mindful. Uh, hey, it's not discussion group time. 
hey, men who are so literal and shit and didn't do cave paintings? Stop talking about how long your finger is. You're lucky if they let your finger anywhere. Half the time, it's a Star Trek figure. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Well, all right, I'll read it. Archaeologist Dean Snow ran the numbers through an algorithm that he created based on a reference set of hands from people of European descent who lived near his university. Using several measurements, such as the length of the fingers, the length of the hand, the ratio, I just died. Um, the algorithm, uh, Snow's modern sample, 60% accuracy. The 32 hound prints he found in the cave, however, were more pronounced in their difference than those of the modern men and women he sampled. Based upon the model and measurements, he found 70 per, 75% of the hands belonged to women. National Geographic points out, and by the way, unimpeachable source. I don't know if you watch their TV station lately, <laughs> but there's some rocking good news going on. When I was little, National Geographic was the ultimate and ending source of everything. The Grosvenor family still owned it, and the specials on TV were narrated by Alexander Scurby and then later by Joseph Campanella. And they went like this. And Alexander Scurby would come on and go, the basilisk. It's a lizard that can run upon water. And then later, Joseph Campanella. Here we are in the Sufi desert. I met Joseph Campanella once with my wife at a voice audition. And I went up to him and I said, because he used to do the, the Mercedes 325. Whether they're new or used, do you need a Mercedes in your life? And I came up to Joseph Campanella and I went, I think you're terrific. And he went, so do I. He really did. Uh, while some hail the new study as a, quote, landmark contribution, it says in giant quotations, others are more skeptical. Let me guess. Those others are going to be men, <laughs> many of whom have never been inside a woman, either digitally or any other way. <laughs> Another researcher. Oh, what's their name? Oh, you're not going to get it in this fucking article. Recently studied the palm to thumb ratio of the handprints and concluded they mostly belong to teenage boys who, he told Nat Geo, often drew their two favorite topics, big, powerful animals and naked ladies. Oh, so let me get this straight. The editor of The Chive wrote this fucking article. The editor of Maxim Magazine informed National Geographic. It's all about hunting and titties. It had to be teenage boys. Glurf, how do you know teenage boys weren't bitches that were led around on fucking rope chains in those days? You don't fucking know, dude, from not Geo and shit. If you see a thousand handprints on a wall, isn't it evident that the matriarchy was in full fucking swing then? Is there one time we could have uncontested in the history of this puny and dying green planet where we can't just admit that the oviparous dominated over the seed bearer? 
Is there no moment when you can't put down your rifle and your Bible and your garbage can lid and your can opener and your ignition and shit and your fucking rotary wankle engine and admit for two fucking seconds that women invented everything good like hand jobs and shit? <laughs> Why did women invent hand jobs, Greg? Because they were like, let's go, all right? We've got buffalo to hunt. Could we go? Obviously, women did all the cave paintings. They painted titties in hunting. How do you know women didn't leave the fucking hunt then? And that men had to chew sinew till it was soft enough to sew with. Jesus fucking Christ. Uh, uh, let's have a little of that Motown here because um, here comes the next one. Here's our first eulogy tonight, and it's a lovely lady named Maxine Powell. She was 98 years old, so it was a complete triumph of the will that she lived this long. I think when you get near 98, really, all bets are off. But my favorite paragraph in the whole article was, her cause of death was not disclosed. Her cause of death was dying. She's 98. How long are you supposed to live? To 145? Diana Ross pays tribute. Uh, Motown greats pay tribute to Maxine Powell. A style like I've never seen. Turn that down just a touch. Uh, Maxine Powell, the finishing school instructor who infused Motown's young stars with elegance and poise, passed away and is now a swirling mass of unbelievable pegged pants up in the stars with manicures. Oh, fuck yeah. And sequin dresses and giant false eyelashes and women walking around with books on their head. She's ordering the fucking gods to sit up straight. Powell was peacefully surrounded by Motown family and close friends. Her cause of death was not disclosed. Powell was enlisted by Motown Records in 1964 to help mode singers such as Diana Ross and Marvin Gaye to performers fit for kings and queens. As Powell often put it, she called them her diamonds in the rough and her training, along with tough love, aimed to polish their posture, diction, stage presence, and sense of self-worth. Now, Miley Cyrus is someone I shan't shut, shut, slut, shan't, slut, Shan't, I can't slut shame her and I won't slut shame Miley Cyrus but her posture is dire and, and, and her diction is ridiculous and Diana Ross never went like this Motown artists and other personnel heralded her on Monday as one of the label's key behind-the-scenes figures, an unseen hero whose contributions came to be publicly recognized in later decades. As part of Motown's artist personal development department, Powell was a vessel for Barry Gordy's broader Motown vision, an entertainment legacy that crossed cultural borders. That means white people could listen to it and like it. That means Ed Sullivan, who loved the Supremes probably more than any other act that was ever on his show, was able to accept three black girls on the show because they were sequins gowns and little fucking low heeled uh, high heels and had giant uh, and had well although Diana Ross's posture right of all the Motown stars Marvin Gaye's posture is awesome Diana Ross has always got her head down like a jack-o'-lantern right and it's always baby love baby love uh, but their gowns were fabulous she brought something to Motown that no other record company had Gordy said she was a star in her own right an original what she said was, I teach class, style, and refinement. 
primly attired and delicately mannered. And if you look up her picture, Maxine Powell, you'll see her in a giant hat and whatnot. She radiated a natural dignity and grace that often struck those who encountered her. Um, she was a Texas native who grew up in Chicago. There was a twinkle in her eye. Former Supreme Mary Wilson described her as her mentor and longtime friend on Monday and an extremely earthy black woman. She enjoyed life. She loved being out there. Who's Cindy Wilson? She was in the Supremes. If you remember in the song Back in My Arms Again by Diana Ross, she says, uh, Cindy and Mary told me what to do. That's who Cindy is. Uh, Powell put, yeah, when band members mention other band members in their song and shit. I think you'll find um, in the song uh, A Bitch by the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger says, you've got to fix it, Charlie. Indicating the drummer must fix it. Powell played the role of tutor well into her later years. I seem to have lost you with this. <laughs> Quick to dole out instructions even to strangers. And that I love. A slouching teen at a restaurant risked a snap judgment from the elderly Powell, recalled Wilson. Young men don't sit like that! Fucking A. Uh, she had a magical angelic instinct for understanding what someone was made of. She knew if they could get through to them in some way, she could help them improve themselves. Uh, she was honored during an August reception at the Motown Museum and Smokey uh, and uh, Barry Gordy and Martha Reeves were the Martha Reeves. Martha Reeves was the receptionist at Motown, but yet her voice was so awesome she could sing heatwave and shit. Uh, Duke Fakir from the Four Tops, and two of the Four Tops are gone. Um, the one who helped write um, Heard It Through the Grapevine, whose name I've unbelievably forgotten at the moment, and Levi Stubbs passed. And I, I saw the tops in the temps in the old days, and they're fucking fantastic. Uh, Duke Fakir said, She taught us all, men and women, etiquette class and what you're supposed to do. That's artist development. I will truly miss her. Uh, Mary Wilson chuckled as she recounted Powell's commands to the Supremes ahead of the national TV appearance. Dance not with your buttocks, she told the group, but with your knees. You're not out on the streets here. <laughs> so if you see the Supremes on TV, they're always like, now he's back in my arms again. <laughs> <laughs> they never do this. <laughs> you know, the Supremes do not twerk, ladies and gentlemen. Great I'll twerk, but they won't twerk. No, the Supremes, uh, what was that one? Uh, I said, love, love, don't come easy. Right? They just move their hips from side to side. It's fantastic. Uh, she was more than the tools and movement that were tools for us as human beings and the lessons uh, became ingrained for life as blah 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 and there we are I thank her so much for making me the person I am today because Mary Wilson called her and shit like that if you want to read more about it you can go to the Detroit Free Press uh, where my wife Jennifer dug this article from uh, and Brian McCollum who gives his phone number and email there if you want to talk more about um, her fabulousness mm. Hey, Proof Kittens, it's your old pal, the Proof Dog. And I'd like to talk to you about LegalZoom.com. Now is the grooviest time to get in the game and launch your own business. But I don't know how, Greg. How do I do it? Um, go to LegalZoom.com. You can form a business or an LLC at LegalZoom.com for just 99 clams. LegalZoom's online process guides you step by step and you get total customer support. Really, it couldn't be easier. They provide self-help services at your specific direction, and they can connect you to an attorney if you need one, but they're not a law firm, so you save a pile of money. Here's what you do. Get an extra discount when you enter Smartest in the referral box at checkout. For incorporation, trademarks, patents, and lots of other stuff, go to LegalZoom.com right now. Discount code SMARTEST. That's LegalZoom.com, and the discount code is S-M-A-R-T-E-S-T. -E smartest like smartest man in the world. Thanks, y'all. Moving on, and here we go. 
let's see. Here's the boring preachy part. One after the next. Uh, and the Guardian... Uh, former Halliburton manager pleaded guilty Tuesday to destroying evidence in the aftermath of the deadly rig explosion that spawned BP's massive 2010 oil spill. Let's get to his name. Anthony Badalamente, 62, of Katy, Texas, faces a, a maximum sentence of a year in prison and a $100,000 fine after his guilty plea to one misdemeanor count of destruction of evidence. Badalamente was the cementing technology director for Halliburton Energy Services Group, Halliburton Energy Services Group, Halliburton Energy Services Group, Halliburton Energy Services Group. Halliburton was the company that Dick Cheney, who was president during the Bush administration, was the CEO of. Um, and they're still carrying on their magic to this very day. They also run all of the outboard operations for all of our overseas troops uh, in Afghanistan and all over the world uh, they, by, through a company called um, Brown and Root, who the troops call Burn and Loot. Halliburton is a India. subsidiary of the – sorry? India. And in India as well. The, Oh, absolutely. Uh, Halliburton is up to so much nefarious shit, I can't begin to describe it to you. That's why I wanted to go through this article again here today and emphasize the fact that um, uh, during the last couple of weeks during the shutdown and everything, they've been talking about taking the money away from the SNAP program, which is the food stamp program in the United States. And then I actually saw one of the uh, Republican women uh, um, representatives had the mendacity and the audacity and the fucking giant balls to mention that um, people on food stamps were using them to buy marijuana and therefore they should have their food stamps taken away. And we're talking about poor people in this country having their food taken away from them. Meanwhile, the people at Halliburton have paid minimal, if any, fees at all and have garnered insane and obscene profits from all of the wars all over the world at all times. And not one of them has ever faced any kind of conditional trial other than this person, Anthony Badalamente, who will probably get a fine and a suspended sentence. No way are they putting him in jail. Um, prosecutor said he instructed two Halliburton employees to delete data during a post-spill review of the cement job on BP's blown-out Macondo well. Eleven people died on the Macondo well, just so you know that. And keep that in your mind. And the untold billions of dollars worth of horrible fucking nonsense that that oil spill created all over the Gulf, including Mississippi and Louisiana last month. A federal judge accepted a separate plea agreement calling for Halliburton to pay a $200,000 fine for a misdemeanor stemming from Badalamenti's conduct. They also agreed to be on probation and to make a $55 million contribution to the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. But that payment was not a condition of the deal. They've also been running full-page ads in the New York Times and lots of papers around the country complaining about having to give the money up that the people are suing them for and they've complained loudly and longly as recorded on this show and reported on this show about the people who've been suing them uh, that had their lives ruined by this giant spill and they are saying that they're frivolous suits against them and that they shouldn't have to pay out the money that they paid out uh, I guess uh, from their point of view they shouldn't have to assume any responsibility for their malfeasance negligence and furthermore uh, I was going to say felony cover up but let's just call it a misdemeanor cover up of what happened in 20 April 2010, explosion killed 11 workers and led to the nation's worst offshore oil spill. The nation's worst offshore oil spill. In May 2010, Bad Elementary directed a senior program manager to run computer simulations on the centralizers. The results indicated there was little difference, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Battle of Many is accused of instructing the program manager to delete the results. A different Halliburton employee also deleted data. Halliburton notified investigators from the Justice Department about the deletion of data. I bet they did. I bet they rushed as fast as they could to the phone and fired off a fucking phone call to the Justice Department and went, oh, my God, we've done wrong and we feel so awful. 
Uh, BP Wall Street leaders Robert Kaluza and Donald Vedrine await a trial next year on manslaughter charges stemming from the rig workers' deaths. How many years passed is it now? They botched a key safety test and disregarded abnormally high pressure readings that were glaring signs of trouble before the well blowout, prosecutors say. They botched a key safety test and disregarded abnormally high pressure readings. Former BP exec David Rainey is charged with concealing information from Congress about the amount of oil that was spewing from the blown out well in 2010. Former BP engineer Kurt Mix is charged with deleting two floors down from the courtroom. Uh, U.S. District Judge Carl Barbier is presiding over a trial for spill-related civil litigation. For the trial's second phase, Barbier is hearing dueling estimates from experts for BP and the federal government about the amount of oil that spewed into the Gulf. Because we're arguing over the amount of oil that spewed into the Gulf that killed 11 people and caused untold damage to everything and ruined the ecology of the Gulf and cost billions of dollars for people to uh, repair and uh, killed lots of animals and shit like that, too, if you're soft-hearted like that. Um, that's all I wanted to get at there, because here comes the next article. Uh, and this is from Salon magazine by Joan Walsh, who's quite a keen writer there. War criminals toast each other over jokes as America burns. I didn't write that. She did. But I thought it was good. A nod at the plaza for Dick Cheney and his friends reminds us that Democrats don't just play as rough as the GOP does. Talk about torture. As the nation is dragged toward a debt ceiling crisis, which, by the way, will be over by the time this is, goes out, the debt crisis will be over and will have uh, all resulted and Yellowstone will be open again and John Boehner will be able to get a fucking orange boner. <laughs> and don't, don't you blame both sides for this, Greg? No. No, I don't. I blame one side. The intractable, recalcitrant, unbelievably juvenile, incestuous wing of the moron part of the Tea Party of the infantile part of the Republican Party is who I blame, okay? But aren't they all corrupt and aren't they all co-opted? To be sure. Uh, didn't the insurance companies make out through the Assisted Health Care Act? Yeah, sure, lots of that shit happened. The reason why they wanted this Health Care Act to stop is because it works. That's why they wanted it to stop. They wanted to get their way, and they thought they'd stop the world and hurt a lot of people in the process. And I won't have it. Uh, as the nation's dragged toward the debt ceiling crisis by a band of radical Republicans to, determined to invalidate laws they don't like but don't have the power to repeal, party elders got together for a lighthearted roast of accused war criminal Dick Cheney in New York Tuesday night. This was several weeks ago by the time I read this. The ad and commentary read... This is the ad for the party for Dick Cheney. He was, in the, he was the White House Chief of Staff. He was House Minority Whip. He was Secretary of Defense. He was Vice President of the United States. Now he'll be the main course. BuzzFeed had a huge article about it, too, if you didn't read it this week, by Ben Smith. Guests shared details of the Ocket Record Gala, which featured humor from Donald Rumsfeld. <laughs> Paul Pot came by. <laughs> with, with General Trujillo. Yeah. General Marcos had a couple of hilarious. Donald Rumsfeld doesn't, isn't funny. Even if you know him, he's not funny. Michael McCoskey and Spoiled Nepotista. That's a great line. And Spoiled Nepotista. I wish I'd thought of that. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> and party wrecker Liz Cheney. 
And you know who Liz Cheney is. She's Dick's daughter. But the one who's um, uh, uh, wildly not. Uh, yeah, exactly. Ah, that's so funny. Deferment number two, someone just said. He had five deferments during the Vietnam War. Dick Cheney did. He was president. Uh, first, a Wyoming senator who's from Virginia. There were lighthearted waterboarding jokes, and someone, reportedly Senator Joe Lieberman, rocked the House by saying something that... <laughs> something to the effect, it's nice that we're all here at the plaza instead of in cages after some war crimes trial. At least a couple of people of the conscience buried under their money. They told Smith... Uh, blah, blah, ben Smith at BuzzFeed there were some waterboarding jokes that were really tasteless I can see the case for enhanced interrogation techniques after September 11th I can't I can't see the case for enhanced interrogation techniques ever in fact I can't see the case for calling them enhanced interrogation techniques because you know what they are torture like thumb screws or the Iron Maiden or the windlass or the wheel or th- you know what I mean? That's what it is. When I stick a cattle prod up your ass and you fucking cry out in pain and tell me the names of everyone you've ever fucking fucked in your life because you'd rather have that happen than me stick the cattle prod up your ass again. That's what torture is. You saw... Uh, uh, most deaf get uh, uh, waterboarded. You've seen, uh, who else did it? Christopher Hitchens got waterboarded. It, it's the most revolting thing you can possibly imagine. But why shouldn't we do it, Greg? There's bad guys in the world. Because we're good guys. Yeah. We're good guys. If I stick a lit cigarette in your eye and you tell me something, can I depend on what you told me? Yeah, yeah although someone, I had an Israeli tell me once, torture works, Greg. And I'm not just singling out Israelis. The government of our country believes it. Judging from the uproarious laughter reported, most attendees didn't have a problem. Uh, She writes, I found my blood boiling after reading Smith's piece. Our tax dollars keep Cheney alive on the best health care government money can buy. How many bypasses? How many hearts? While his political inheritors shut down the government to stop the uninsured from getting help, doctors keep trying and failing to give Cheney a working heart. Instead, he he seems to be kept alive by spite. The former vice... (laughs) Oh, no, she's a good writer. She's a good writer. The former vice president and his neocon buddies couldn't get together to reminisce about their war service because they all ducked the military. Cheney most famously with five deferments, and as Kelly yelled out, uh, Lynn is the second deferment, uh, during the Vietnam War, which, of course, he supported. He supported the Vietnam War. My joke about Cheney was this. Uh, where, where was he during the five deferments? Waiting out that fifth deferment had to be one of the most awful moments of his life, aside from shooting his friend in the face with 128 rounds of 38-weight uh, birdshot. Yeah. Honey, keep on dancing, sweetie. You're doing a great job. Well, oh, the deferment came. Hooray. Champagne for everyone. Uh, in fact, that's their hallmark. You might be a neocon if you've never met a war you didn't like and never met one you didn't fight in. Instead... At the roast, they mocked General Colin Powell, who did serve in Vietnam. Right-wing nutbags railed against President Obama for running up the deficit. Cheney drove the deficit with tax cuts, tax cuts for wealthy friends and two wars of choice, famously telling George W. Bush, who she calls his minion, quote, Reagan showed us deficits don't matter. In fact, Reagan showed Cheney something else. A president could break the law as in Iran-Contra and get away with it. My friend Charles Pierce at Esquire, who I, wrote the, I read the article from two weeks ago when he wrote Morons Have Taken Over the uh, Factory when he was talking about uh, the shutdown in this country, has long argued our current political hostage situation goes back to the Democrats' failure to do more to punish Iran-Contra lawbreakers. I agree. 
And in fact, uh, you could have put Admiral Poindexter in jail. You could have put Oliver North in jail. You could have put uh, Richard Sherbrooke in jail. You could have put um, dozens of more people in the Iran country, uh, including our president and George Herbert Walker Bush, who was uh, yeah. up to his fucking dick in it. In Pierce's words, we don't remember what Iran Contra was like, Greg. I've got a smartphone and I'm super busy. Um, during the 80s, uh, Ronald Reagan, who, by the way, was never popular and never elected in a majority and ran the country into the goddamn ground and refused to believe that AIDS existed. Just to put it in perspective for you, because I know on TV a lot, they're like, Reagan was the greatest president ever. His, he should be on a coin. He should be on Mount Rushmore and shit. Reagan's lucky he wasn't in prison. Yeah. That's how that fucking works. Uh, why, why does no one say that, Greg? Because they're busy shitting on Jimmy Carter every minute of the goddamn day. <laughs> um, Reagan um, was ha- had, running a CIA operation out the back door where they were selling dr- coke and, and helping to supply the rebels in Nicaragua. The rebels were right-wing rebels who were raping nuns and in El Salvador as well and uh, running all kinds of mayhem down in Central America and shit like that. But Central America, where's that, Greg? Isn't that Iowa? (laughs) In Pierce's words, Attorney General Ed Meese, who, by the way, wrote a comprehensive position paper on pornography in the 80s called the Meese Report. Uh, is apparently still a key player in the right-wing ignore-the-law thug syndicate. Ed Meese helps craft the Tea Party strategy. The Reagan undead are still with us. Having backed down on Iran-Contra, blah, 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 then uh, then Clinton got impeached. Uh, Al Gore denied the White House. Reagan appointee Scalia wrote the decision. We're getting to that. After a vote recount in Miami that was shut down by preppy GOP thugs in the famous Brooks Brothers riot. And by the way, if you think that actual people burst into that room to stop the vote count in Florida, those people were well-funded, and you can see their names if you go online. After that, Democrats compromised with Bush on tax cuts, education reform bill, blah, 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 and Iraq. When America turned against the war and the people lied to us, Democrats took the House back. Nancy Pelosi immediately took impeachment off the table. Likewise, Barack Obama said, quote, we need to look forward. As opposed to looking backwards. <laughs> when asked after the 2008 election whether he planned to investigate, not do anything about, just investigate possible criminal acts of the Bush administration. To be fair, I should note Obama has continued many Bush-Cheney national security policies. I'll emphasize that even more. Uh, there was a picture of Ed uh, Snowden shopping in Russia the other day. That'll give you an idea of how he's pursuing the Bush-Cheney policies. That a person who told the truth about what we're doing around the world is now shopping in Moscow for groceries, not at the fucking John's here on La Brea, <laughs> formerly Vaughn's. Taking impeachment off the table might well have been the right thing to do for the country. No, it wasn't. The Republicans never fail to impeach people, and they never fail to start the proceedings against people. And when they don't, they threaten to. Um, By the way, if the other party transgresses in a treasonous manner, it's not only not what's right for the country, it's fucking imperative. There's no reason, yeah, thank you, that Bush and Cheney shouldn't have been impeached. There's no reason. And after the fact, when Obama became president, there should have been an investigation and it should have been launched into their criminal fucking activities. Now, what about Obama and his criminal activities? Hell yeah. But I'm saying that everyone, what, what Clinton did was a, a fucking scutcheon. It was, it, was it was a starfish on the ass of a fucking sperm whale. <laughs> Compared to the comprehensive bullshit 
that Nixon, who was uh, uh, threatened to be impeached, and Reagan, who they didn't impeach at all, but was not compass menace the last four years of his administration, and the, la- the second Reagan term was a complete fucking disaster, economically and politically. Yeah. I-, I mean, there's just no other way to fucking put it. But they won again, and then the war in Iraq started, and the first time, and then other Yeah, I know, I heard your fucking argument. People are down on Canada lately for giving us Ted Cruz, but let's be fair to Canada. And remember, Cheney doesn't feel welcome there. If you may remember this awesome moment, this was last year. He had to back out of an event in Toronto because of the fears it was too dangerous for him. The National Post in Canada reported, which, by the way, is their right-wing newspaper. He felt that in Canada, the risk of violent protests was simply too high, said the event promoter who had booked Cheney. He was afraid Canadians were going to waste him. Uh, the year before that, the former vice president wound up trapped in a fancy club in Vancouver for seven hours after allegedly violent protesters amassed outside. Not in New York, at the plaza, the men who mired us in English endless war while giving tax breaks to themselves and their plutocrat cronies drank wine and laughed about the good times. That's from Joan Walsh. You can read that if you like. To get to Antonin Scalia, the man who wrote the majority decision about Gore versus the state of Miami, the lowest moment in the history of the Supreme Court during my lifetime. Yes, Citizens United was revolting beyond all measure. Yes, them destroying the Voting Rights Act with Judge Roberts was, uh, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts was alarming uh, beyond anything you can think of. Um, not letting them count the votes in Florida was an overt act of fucking democracy so violently from behind that it will never recover. And we haven't recovered from it. That's why there was the economic meltdown of 2008. That's why all these things continue. That's why there's no recovery now. And why all these things are going on and on and why Afghanistan is still a war and why Dick Cheney's having parties at the Plaza Hotel in New York and they're doing waterboard jokes and shit like that. Exactly. And Rupert Murdoch and all of those other cocksuckers who run all of the mainstream media. But aren't you a media figure as well, Greg? And should I believe what you're telling me? Believe what you want. Just hear what I'm saying and then go out and seek your own fucking uh, information. Just don't ever believe what you see on TV or what you hear. Uh, please use some critical thinking. This is from the New Yorker magazine, and this was sent to me by a fellow named Derek. Uh, Antonin Scalia was interviewed at length. I'm going to read you some of the highlights, and then we're going to fuck off into this good night. Because the Supreme Court session is starting up again, and there's a lot of very vital cases they're going to be arguing here. Um, uh, let's see here. Uh, on a day that happened to be the 27th anniversary of his swearing in as Associate Justice, Antonin Scalia entered the Supreme Court's enormous East Conference room so casually one might have easily missed him. This is magazine writing. He's smaller than his king-sized persona suggests and his manner more puckish than formal. How, how enchanting. A singularity on the court and an icon on the right, Scalia is perhaps more responsible than any American alive for the mainstreaming of conservative ideas about jurisprudence. In particular, the principle is of originalism, interpreting the Constitution as the framers intended it, rather than as an evolving document. Only a recondite troglodyte would consider that the men of the 18th century wearing powdered wigs who raped slaves would still be pertinent in this decade. Originalism is the last refuge of the fucking Pleistocene epoch. 
Statues must be interpreted based on their words alone. He got, and this writer writes, has got to be the only justice ever to use the phrase argle bargle in a dissent. <laughs> this is what I wanted to get at. We're going to go quickly through this and then we're going to leave and we're going to drink and smoke dope and have fun and have good times. As, as uh, Lenny Kravitz said, are you going to go my way? <laughs> but what I really want to know is, uh, are you going to go my way? This is uh, what the New York Magazine asks him. Not the New Yorker, New York Magazine. What the New Yorker's article would be like, Anneen Scalia, hot in black robes. <laughs> Anneen, what's your bedside reading? Still reading the story of O? He's purportedly a member of the Opus Dei, and the Opus Dei tends to be a, kind of a self-flagellating group of Catholics. In other words, you might wear a thigh band around you that burns into your leg all during those long court sessions so that you can concentrate on how your balls feel while the law is being thrown down around you. What's your media diet? Where do you get your news? Antonin Scalia. Well, we get the newspapers in the morning. We meaning the justices? No, exclamation point. Maureen and I, that's his wife. Oh, you and your wife. Here is what Justice Scalia says about how he takes information in the morning. I usually skim them. I'm a comedian. I read whole newspapers and shit like that. Sometimes whole actual physical newspapers and mark them up with a pen, as you can see. He skims them. We just get the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Times. The Washington Times, by the way, uh, what used to be a unification church publication. Uh, it's as right wing as you could possibly be. The Wall Street Journal is owned by Rupert Murdoch, just so you know. Rupert Murdoch is the one who led the spying scandal in England where all of the editors of his papers were spying on everyone in England, including all of the government officials, and using that information against them in the newspapers. Piers Morgan, I'd just like to bring back to that because I hate him so much. <laughs> Even though he's been down on the shutdown. We used to get to the... But Piers Morgan worked for the Mirror. Uh, yeah. He was, we used to get the Washington Post, but it just... Dot, dot, dot went too far for me. I couldn't handle it anymore. What tipped you over the edge? Justice Scalia. It was the treatment of almost any conservative issue. It was slanted and often nasty. And you know, why should I get upset every morning? I don't think I'm the only one. I think they lost subscriptions, partly because they became so shrilly, shrilly liberal. So no New York Times either? No, New York Times, no post. And do you look at anything online? I get most of my news probably driving back and forth to work on the radio. Not NPR? Sometimes NPR, but not usually. Talk guys? Talk guys, usually. Do you have a favorite? You know who my favorite is? My good friend Bill Bennett. He's... He's off the air when I'm driving in, but I listen to him sometimes when I'm shaving. He has a wonderful talk show. He has a wonderful talk show. You know what's full of wonder? When you go to Pacific Grove when the monarch butterflies are mating and you see an entire sky full of orange. When you go to Niagara Falls and see the mist rising off of the river. When you uh, walk through the Muir Woods and you look at the astounding sequoia trees that have been there 
for hundreds and possibly thousands of years. Those are wonderful moments. When a child runs up to you and kisses you and says, I loves you. That's a moment full of wonder. Listening to Bill Bennett on the radio. It's like having your genitalia scraped across sandpaper. It's very thoughtful. He has good callers. I think they keep off stupid people. As I said earlier this week on Joe Rogan's show, I'm a comedian and I don't have to adjudicate moment, uh, 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 matters of grave uh, national importance and international importance, uh, even though I was appointed by a sociopath. Uh, I'm not a justice on the Supreme Court and I am able to watch Fox News and I am able to read the Wall Street Journal, which I will often cite on the show, and I am able to watch CNN and I am able to have the catholicity of taste to take in a variety of different viewpoints and not freak out that they're too shrilly, shrilly conservative. If I, as a comedian who have no responsibility to the public whatsoever, am able to do this, I wonder... Might the justices on the Supreme Court be able to hold a couple of differing viewpoints in their mind at the same time and weigh them as opposed to being so panicked over them that they can't read the New York Times anymore? Just so you know who William Bennett is, because I want you to know who Antonin Scalia is listening to here. Aren't you laying kind of hard on him? Don't start me on fucking Clarence Thomas. <laughs> William John Bill Bennett is an American conservative pundit, politician, and political theorist. This is from Wikipedia. <laughs> Just so you know that I have an open mind told all, towards all sources, no matter how erroneous and inaccurate they are. He served as United States Secretary of Education from 85 to 88. Who was president then, Greg? Ronald Reagan. He was Ronald Reagan's education secretary. If there's one thing you can definitively say about the Reagan administration, particularly the second term, was education blossomed. <laughs> I was saying that sarcastically. He also, you may also remember this during the Reagan administration, when the drug wars first got underway and or really got underway with the MAD funding and they started to go after everyone and, and, and really use the drugs to fund all their illegal covert activities, which they're still doing, uh, and that the drug wars have been a colossal waste of time and put lots of innocent people in jail and have destroyed loads of people's lives and have been about as effective as the war on fucking terrorism. That... Nancy said, just say no, because she was rich and privileged. And it's easy to just say no when a doctor will write you a prescription for any goddamn thing you want in the world. But if you live in a perhaps a poor neighborhood and the chance was to work at a Burger King for no money and have no health benefits, or you can sell rock on the street and make all the money you want and be a big pimp and get handies and fucking shoot dudes in the eye and shit. I wonder what the choice you'd make would be. He served as United States Secretary of Education, post of Director of Office of National Drug Control Policy under George H.W. Bush. In 2000, he co-founded K-12, a for-profit online education corporation, which is publicly traded. Bennett is a staunch supporter of the war on drugs and has been criticized for his views on the issue. On Larry King, he said the viewer's suggestion of beheading drug dealers would be, quote, morally plausible. He's also lamented we still grant them drug dealers habeas corpus rights. That means... 
uh, in Latin, literally, uh, bring the body, show the body. In 95, he teamed up with C. Dolores Tucker to create advertising to target Time Warner's lack of regulation on gangster rap. So the problem for him is that gangster rap and its glorification of violence and denigration of women was more of an issue than the fact that the Reagan administration was selling cocaine to provide arms for people who were illegally running revolutions against legally elected governments in Central America. And was one of the signers of the January uh, 1998 PNAC letter sent to President Bill Clinton urging Clinton to remove Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein from power. Did you catch the date on that? 98. We went to war with Iraq in 91 and again in 2003. In 2003, it became publicly known that Bennett was a high-stakes gambler who reportedly lost millions of dollars in Las Vegas. Some felt it conflicted with his public image as a leading voice for conservative morals. Criticism elevated in the wake of Bennett's self-publication, The Book of Virtues, in which he argued for self-discipline. <laughs> this is Antonin Scalia's favorite radio show host. He doesn't listen to NPR because Bill Bennett has a wonderful show. And where they eliminate the stupid callers. Uh, Empower America, the organization he co-founded and headed at the time, opposed the extension of casino gambling in the States. Bennett's never said he had a problem with gambling. Well, why should he? And has maintained his habit did not put himself or his family in any financial jeopardy. Well, jolly good. <laughs> After Bennett's gambling became public, he said he did not believe his gambling. His habit set a good example that he'd done too much gambling over the years. Pardon me. As the two generals that were recently released... Uh, from running our nuclear program were both uh, compulsive gamblers. Uh, his wife, Elaine, told the USA Today, all our bills are paid. His gambling days are over. He's never going again, she said. <laughs> <laughs> on September 28, 2005, in a discussion on Bennett's Morning in America radio show, a caller proposed the idea that the social secu security system might be solvent today if abortion hadn't been permitted following Roe v. Wade. Bennett responded that aborting all African-American babies would, quote, would be an impossible, ridiculous, and morally reprehensible thing to do, but the crime rate would go down. Subsequently, Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid and House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, as well as civil rights groups, condemned Bennett's statements and demanded an apology. President George W. Bush said Bennett's statements were not appropriate. Bennett responded to the criticism, saying in part, uh, a thought experiment about public policy on national radio should not have received the condemnation it has. Anyone, by the way, what he said about how it would be impossible, ridiculous, and morally reprehensible, but the crime rate would go down if Negroes had forced abortions, was a thought experiment. And I can only sit in wonder at that thought, making this a wonderful radio show. Such distortions from leaders of organizations and parties is a disgrace not only to the organizations and institutions they serve, said Bill Bennett, but to the First Amendment. Here's some more with Scalia and then we'll fuck off. Uh, one of the things that upsets me about modern society is the coarseness of manners. You can't go to a movie or watch a television show, for that matter, without hearing the constant use of the F word, including, you know, ladies using it. By the way, this is from this month in New York Magazine from a sitting justice. This isn't from 1854. Yeah. This is Antonin Scalia now. People that I don't know talk like that, but if you portray it a lot, 
the society is going to become that way. And video games caused the shooting at the Navy Yard, too, is my understanding. It's very sad, says R. Justice. You can't have a movie or television show without a nude sex scene. Am I to understand that in your world, people perform the, the act of sex? Thank you. Fully clothed? Perhaps wearing Judge Rehnquist's kicky Clinton impeachment robes that had the gold braids on them? Very often having no relation to the plot. I don't mind when it's essential to the plot, as it sometimes is. But my goodness, exclamation point, the society that watches that becomes a coarse society. I would offer that the society that doesn't allow all of the votes to be counted during a presidential election becomes an intellectually bereft society and one that has to plead for its very existence rather than the fact that fuck and fucking are depicted on the media, in the media, and that that's what's upsetting about the country. I think you'll find that people have had sex since the biblical times. <laughs> Ergo, all that begotten. <laughs> then they talk about homosexuality. As you know, Antonin Scalia is not a supporter of homosexual rights. It would be Justice Kennedy who wrote the last decision on that. I have friends that I know are very much suspect you're homosexual. <laughs> Everybody does. <laughs> have any of them come out to you? No, no, not that I know of. Has your personal attitude softened some? Toward what? <laughs> Homosexuality. I don't think I've softened. I don't know what you mean by softened. You know, like when you and your wife get up in the morning and are reading the Washington Times to each other. If you talk to your grandchildren, they have different opinions from you about this, right? Says the reporter from New York Magazine. I don't know about my grandchildren. I know about my children. I don't think they and I differ very much. But I'm not a hater of homosexuals at all. I still think it's Catholic teaching that it's wrong. Okay? But I don't hate the people that engage in it. In my legal opinions, all I've said is that I don't think the Constitution requires the people to adopt one view or the other. There was something different about your demo opinion, I thought. It was really pungent, yes, blah, 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 uh, about the gay lobby. And then he writes, I would write that again. Um, they have a democratic right to do that. And if it's okay to change, they should change democratically and not you at the UCAS of a Supreme Court. The what? U-K-A-S-E. Yeah, I think that's how you say it. It's a mandate, a decree. Whatever you think of the opinion, Justice Kennedy is now the Thurgood Marshal of gay rights, and Scalia nods. It says in the words nods here, brackets. Um, Thurgood Marshall was, in my opinion, the greatest justice that's ever sat on the Supreme Court in the history of the United States. Uh, he was a considered and intelligent person. He was a black man. He was the first black justice on the Supreme Court, and he was a humanist as opposed to an originalist. I don't know how, by your lights, that's going to be regarded in 50 years. And this is what Scalia responds with. I don't know either. And frankly, I don't care. Maybe the world is spinning towards a wider acceptance of homosexual rights. And here Scalia is standing athwarted, at least standing athwarted as a constitutional entitlement. But I've never been custodian of my legacy. When I'm dead and gone, I'll either be sublimely happy or terribly unhappy. I know what I'll be. 
This is an intelligent person, obviously, right? I mean, you, you know, you know, if you define intelligence by understanding a lot of legal books and having passed the bar and, been, and being a justice on the Supreme Court, if that's your definition of intelligence. These cases that he adjudicates on, and he often writes the virulent dissenting opinion. He wrote the dissenting opinion about uh, the Affordable Health Care Act. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he, he's been on the – how do I put this? Um, he doesn't care about his legacy um, about being anti-homosexual in his decisions. Um, and in 50 years, we will, of course, be laughing about this. Do you believe in – you believe in heaven and hell. Of course I do. Don't you believe in heaven and hell? Reporter from New York Magazine, no. <laughs> Justice Scalia, oh my. <laughs> Satan and Jesus in hell, oh my. Satan and Jesus in hell, oh my. Satan and Jesus in hell, oh my. Does that mean I'm not going? Scalia, laughing. <laughs> Unfortunately not. Wait, wait, reporter from New York Magazine, to heaven or hell, Scalia, it doesn't mean you're not going to hell just because you don't believe in it. That's Catholic doctrine. Everyone is going to one place or the other, New York, but you don't have to be a Catholic to get into heaven or believe in it. Of course not. Oh, so you don't know where I'm going, thank God. I don't know where you're going. I don't even know whether Judas Iscariot is in hell. I mean, that's what the Pope meant when he said, who am I to judge? He may have recanted and had severe penance just before he died, who knows? Can we talk about your drafting process? And this is where Scalia, in brackets, leans in and stage whispers, I even believe in the devil. New York Magazine, you do? Scalia, of course, yeah, he's a real person. Hey, come on, that's the standard Catholic doctrine. Every Catholic believes that. New York Magazine, every Catholic believes this. There's a wide variety of Catholics out there. Scalia, if you're faithful to Catholic dogma, that's certainly a large part of it. Have you seen evidence of the devil lately? You know, it's curious. In the Gospels, the devil's doing all sorts of things. He's making pigs run off cliffs. <laughs> that was certainly the part of the Bible that I got the most. <laughs> Porkerotomy, I believe, is the book. For constant listeners of the show, you'll like this next sentence. He's possessing people and whatnot, <laughs> as I would say. And that doesn't happen very much anymore. No, says New York Magazine. Scalia, it's because he's smart. Now, remember earlier when it was about homosexuality, remember earlier when women said fuck and that was disagreeable to Justice Scalia? We talked about the 19th century. Now I think we're going to have to reach a little further back <laughs> into the mists of time. Maybe the 12th or 13th century for this one. And New York Magazine asks Justice Scalia, so what's he doing now? <laughs> we're still on the devil. Justice Scalia, what he's doing now is getting people not to believe in him or in God. He's much more successful that way. That has really painful implications for atheists. Are you sure that's the devil's work? Scalia, I didn't say atheists to the devil's work. New York, well, you're saying the devil is persuading people not to believe in God. Couldn't there be other reasons not to believe? Like rational thinking and shit like that? 
Scalia, well, there certainly can be other reasons, but it certainly favors the devil's desires. I mean, come on. (laughs) That's the explanation for why there's not demonic possession all over the place. That always puzzled me. What happened to the devil, you know? He used to be all over the place. (laughs) He used to be all over the New Testament. New York, right. What happened to him, Scalia? New York, he just got wilier. Scalia, he got wilier. (laughs) New York Magazine, isn't it terribly frightening to believe in the devil? Scalia, you're looking at me as though I'm weird. My God, are you so out of touch with most of America, most of which believes in the devil? I mean, Jesus Christ believed in the devil. It's in the Gospels, exclamation point. You travel in circles that are so removed from mainstream America that you're appalled that anybody would believe in the devil, exclamation point. Most of mankind has believed in the devil for all of history. Many more intelligent people than you or me have believed in the devil. This is a justice on the Supreme Court in a current interview in New York Magazine. New York, I hope you weren't sensing contempt for me. It wasn't your belief that surprised me so much as how boldly you expressed it. Scalia, I was offended by that. I really was. He accuses the writer from New York Magazine of being so out of touch with the American mainstream. Funny, but many of the American mainstream can read several different newspapers at once and look at different websites and not have a fucking heart attack about it. I'm sorry to have offended you. Scalia, have you read the screw tape letters? Well, let's just talk for a moment about the screw tape letters. C.S. Lewis, as you know, aside from inventing Narnia, the witch in the wardrobe, uh, was a, 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 a serious Christian. Uh, and in a book that he wrote in 1942, uh, the demon screw tape writes to his nephew Wormwood, who's a junior demon. Uh, The uncle's mentorship pertains to the nephew's responsibility for securing the damnation of a British man known only as a patient. The book goes on and on and covers many theological points, and that's where Antonine Scalia goes back to, a devout Christian, C.S. Lewis. Here's another thing I find unexpected about you, that you play poker. This is New York Magazine. Do not take this the wrong way, but you strike me as the kind of person who would be a horrible poker player. (laughs) Scalia, shame on you. I'm a damn good poker player. But aren't you the kind of guy who always puts all his cards on the table? I feel, feel like you'd be the worst bluffer ever. And then Scalia says, you can talk to the people in my poker set. And then this is the part that I wanted to read to you, and we are ending after I read it. Do you have a tell? Scalia, what? <laughs> New York Magazine, a tell. Scalia, what's a tell? New York Magazine. What's a tell? Are you joking? No. Uh, If you play poker, you've got your cards in your hand. Sometimes your cards are on the table like that. When you're betting and whatnot. Like if people get a good hand, sometimes they'll go like this. (laughs) Or you're playing with your buddies and they go, I'm in for 20. You knew they threw it away too casually. Or they go like this every time they get a good hand they touch their face or they light a cigarette or whatever it is that people do it's unbelievably common in poker (laughs) 
that every human being who's ever played poker since the beginning of poker has a tell, and that every other player at the table is watching and looking to see when you pick your cards up if you go, oh golly, all of mine look like little shovels. <laughs> Antonin Scalia does not know what a tell is. He's been on the court 27 fucking years. I couldn't fucking believe that. Ever, 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 ever. Um, he went duck hunting with Dick Cheney and did not recuse himself from a case involving Dick Cheney. And this is his final answer. From the case involving Vice President Cheney with whom you'd gone hunting, he duck hunts. And after he duck hunted with Cheney, reporters said, isn't that a conflict of interest? Shouldn't he have you recused yourself from that case? And he said, that's all I have to say about it. Quack, quack. Here's his answer to that question. I thought that took some guts. Most of my opinions don't take guts. They take smarts, but not courage. And I was proud of that. I did the right thing. And it let me in for a lot of criticism. And it was the right thing to do. And I was proud of that. So that's the only heroic thing I've done. So there you are. Not recusing himself from a case of a personal friend of his, Dick Cheney. Mentioned earlier in the podcast as former CEO of Halliburton. Mentioned earlier in the podcast as the man who had a celebratory dinner where they roasted Colin Powell and made fun of him for actually going to war when none of them did, while all of them ended up rich and fucking fat and with new hearts from other people. My name's Greg Proops. This has been the Smartest Man in the World podcast. You're the smartest man in the world. I wish you nothing but love. May every page that you turn be a satchel page. May every bell that rings be a cool papa bell. And if you have to buy bonds, make sure that they're very bonds. Good night everybody.